It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. A reminder to rate and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And a reminder that the rating and review can also be shitty. As long as you just do it. But our friends at Banyan Tree 21 don't have any shitty reviews that I know of. In fact, they treat people from all over the world because they're effective and affordable. And this episode's phone call is made possible by Banyan Tree 21, a residential addiction rehab located in Chiang Mai, Thailand, using a fusion of best Western practices and traditional Eastern medicine at a truly affordable cost. Visit www.banyantree21.com for more. It's caller uh, 11? 11. And their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me? Yeah, very well. Cool. So I go by Nick, and this is pretty simple. You've got a maximum of an hour to tell your story about addiction. Just don't mention your name. Yeah. And don't get too specific on where you're from. Mm-hmm. All right. So tell me your story about addiction. Okay. So. Um, I, I did listen to a little bit of the pod, podcast because I was unfamiliar with it. And I've just noticed that normally when people tell their stories, they start in childhood and their trauma, then addiction, then maybe recovery and where they are now. And um, I, I don't know, I was always taught as a, as a kid, a story should have a beginning and a middle and an end. But just recently I've noticed that, especially with Netflix and stuff, they do have a beginning, a middle, and at the end, but they start at different places, and that can be an interesting timeline. The reason I wanted to start where I'm starting is I was having a chat with someone yesterday, and uh, just to give you some perspective, I was a cocaine addict, um, probably an alcohol addict. Um, I've been clean for 18, just over 18 years now, and certain things change. My perception changes over the years, and... Um, so I was speaking to someone yesterday or maybe the day before, uh, someone whose father died actually, and uh, we was having a chat and um, I was recalling um, a story from 14 years ago. I was four years clean and my father died. It was it was kind of traumatic. I found him dead in his bed in his, his little apartment and uh, for some reason I didn't want to become the star of the show, which would have been my previous M.O. Um, and I decided to get quite practical and do what I had to de- do, you know, and and didn't kind of take center stage, which was, it took me a while to, to realize that. that I was just being practical and helpful. And the hardest bit about that period was telling my three sons, who at the time were like 8, 10, and 12 or something. And uh, so I got them one by one and had a chat with them um, and told them that their granddad died. And and one by one, we've cried together and we've wiped each other's tears away. And um, and I was immediately felt, I immediately felt on, on each occasion with my three sons that they had deep feelings for me. They had a strong sense 
that not only was I telling them that their granddad had died, but my father had died. And it was an exquisitely loving yet painful experience to cry with your sons about something that's genuinely sad. But then it made me think about when I was about 12 and my father told me that my granddad had died. And uh, my, my dad was drunk when he told me, which wasn't unusual. Um, but I didn't like my grandfather. He, he didn't like any of us kids. But I had no felt idea that he was telling me his dad had died. It was just my granddad had died. It was the, the reason of saying this, it was as far as I remember, I've always kind of felt this way, that things are always happening to me. Um, in recovery circles, let's say we call it self-obsession. Um, but I also had a sense of, of the innocence of 12-year-old me. I, I never made a decision to become self-obsessed. Um, it wasn't a conscious decision that I'd made. It was just, if you like, a survival technique. Um it's good for survival on one level, and yet it's not good for comfort because everything can seem like a threat. And whilst that's okay in childhood, as soon as you're able to, you, you then want to medicate that threat. And I think that's the thread of addiction, is the uh, easing of the feelings for threats. And again, I've met over the years, I've met thousands of addicts, and I think all of us are got this chronic self-obsession. I think a lot of the planet has chronic self-obsession. It doesn't mean you'll all become addicts, but um, I think most of us think that we're the voice in our head. And if your voice is in your, in the voice in your head is telling you everything's a threat and then you feel bad, it's kind of inevitable that, uh, that some of us are going to turn to substances or shopping or gambling or sex or, or something to stop you feeling that, that kind of sense of threat. And, uh, yeah, rather than condemn 12-year-old me, it was, as far as I can remember, I've had this chronic kind of self-obsession. Uh, I think it comes from, I think trauma is the word used. Uh, I always used to think of trauma as um, like Vietnam veterans or something, but uh, I think it's a lot more general than that. Um, I, I still get the sense today even if my girlfriend like doesn't look at me quite the right way, I get this sense that she's going to leave me. Now, what I've got to cope with that today is that, is that I notice it as, as it's just a part of my wiring. It doesn't. I'm not going to say it doesn't affect me, but it doesn't get it never gets into my bones anymore. Like we have where I live, we've got five dogs and. One of them's particularly fond of me, and sometimes he'll run towards me, and, they, and I think he's coming to like lick me and call me God. And, and sometimes he just runs past me, and I get that little tug of even the dog hates you. And I, and I find that quite funny now, whereas in the past, it would affect the way I feel. And again, I'm not saying it doesn't affect me, but it's kind of, it's only skin deep. I get to see it, uh, so I don't have to medicate the way I feel. Um, the, the, the point I want, wanted to make is, is, is normally we, well, not we, uh, normally I used to consider trauma to be some um, 
some great big event like uh, like sexual abuse. I mean, and I've, I've got a very uh, foggy memory of some sexual abuse that I suffered. It, it just to put it into context, it was a, a one-off incident with a stranger when I was I was about five or six. And I've never I've never felt the sense that I've carried it as trauma. I've looked at it in my in my own kind of recovery from addiction. And when when I speak about it, it's almost like I'm speaking about I don't know a birthday party or something. There's no there's no emotion there. It doesn't doesn't grip me. And then that can often be the case. There'll be a, a traumatic memory of an obviously traumatic event. It's. It's just the misinterpretation of a lot of events. I I think a lot of the times, you know, like if um, I don't know, your mum keeps putting you down as a baby, especially, especially pre-verbal, you can start to pick up these messages as, as abandonment. And then, as an adult, like maybe my girlfriend looking at me in not quite an intense way as I think she should. It, unless you have a look at that, you're going to experience it as, as perhaps abandonment. And whilst I think that psychotherapy can be helpful, and uh, I think I was about four years clean, I had a couple of years in therapy, and it was helpful to a certain degree. The downfall of psychotherapy is it, is it, is it can't get pre-verbal. So if it's if it's your first year, and then I believe, and some others believe, that between a year and about seven years, it's kind of cemented in by then. And some people just have the character to, to get over things or see their character lacking, so develop it. And some people don't. Some people just go to medicate it, which is an understandable way to, to deal with life. If you're, if you're feeling chronically ill, you want chronic relief. It's just, just that some people can, can go and have two or three drinks and a, or maybe half a bottle of wine with their dinner and other people can't. Um, some of us want oblivion as soon as we pick up that drink or, or smoke that joint. We're, we're, just, we're just looking not to experience anything. So the, the, the trauma thing, I'm, I'm not too sure. And obviously there are clearly traumatic events that can trigger this stuff. But I think there's more, they're just events that have been misinterpreted. You know, I'm prepared to be wrong on it. It's just that I've, I've, I've experienced a lot of that in myself and others, where it's become clearer a lot later on. Like, say, say like, in, we, we all accept that we've got five senses, and a few years ago I studied and practiced um, a certain type of Buddhism for a while, and, and, and they kind of suggested that there's a sixth sense, which is the, the sensing of your thoughts or the listening of your thoughts. And it was pointed out to me that it's, it's not the listener. It's not a part of your psyche. There's something that's not a thing that listens to your thoughts. Like, you know, when you're reading, there's a voice in your head. If you're walking down the road and you're in a bad mood, you, you look at the state of that guy's shirt. You know, there's, we don't always put her, we don't always come out audibly or ver verbally, but there's almost a constant running commentary in the head that most of us think that's us. Um, but there's there's certain groups that I've been involved with that say, well, we're not the voice in the head, we're the listening. And it's important to point out it's the listening, it's the verb, and not the noun, the listener. Now, I've met a lot of people in recovery who are kind of, I don't know, let's say ultra kind of woke, and they've become the listener. 
and they make this thing out of how much of a good listener they are. Well, I think it's the listening we need to we need to focus on, or, or let's say I need to focus on. And when I do, I get more detached from the thoughts and the feelings of my stuff and your stuff. It, it feels a bit dispassionate at times, but often it's just it's it's just best to let let things settle and don't get involved in the drama. This chronic self-absorption that you're talking about where do you think it came from and how did it manifest itself into an addiction um yeah so i I think i had a normal-ish kind of upbringing we was pretty poor i was one of six kids um dad was let's say call him an alcoholic Uh, mum had to become a workaholic to make up the shortcomings. Um, so I kind of learned at an early age to, to medicate. Medicating your feelings is the way to go. And also to work hard is the way to go. And so all my brothers and sisters, we all, we all, we all enjoyed a drink and, a, you know, a, a smoke. And um, we was taught that from dad, really, and not to take life too seriously. And, and from mum, we all had a good work ethic. And so, I, you know, I went to school. I did okay and, and started a career and got into business and got a girlfriend and got married and had kids and done all done, done all the stuff. But the, as life comes at you and you get more responsibility, the, the, the feelings and the, the importance of yourself becomes bigger. And... Um, so I, I was 41 by the time I got into recovery, by the time I threw the towel in. You know, I wasn't, I didn't call myself an addict. You know, I was married. I had a nice house and two cars on the drive and three kids who were dressed smart. Um, but spent a lot of time on my own just sniffing cocaine. And if the cocaine ran out, I was picking white things off the carpet, telling myself I'm not an addict. Um, it, it, it was just get, getting overwhelmed by feelings that were fear-based. It was the only way I knew was to take something um, to, to medicate that. And then there was a quite a long period in my life where, where I, I didn't use alcohol and cocaine addictively. I could go out of a few pints. I'd have a, a line or two of cocaine in the toilets with my friends, and then I'd go home. And this, this went on for a number of years. Uh, but as my kind of responsibility grew, and my kids are getting older, and you think as they get older, you have less responsibility. But it actually works the other way around. You, you know, they're kind of helpless when they're born, and uh, like even as a, a, a drug user, I still had a sense of uh, of duty about what I had to do. And as they get older, they start having opinions and there's conflicts, and but they don't always work out right. And then my own psyche kind of turned on me. So it's like, I'm not enough. You know, I, I should be providing more. I, and then my feelings and my behavior become more erratic. Um, I felt like a victim quite a lot of the time. If things would go wrong, um, why does this stuff happen to me? And had no idea that it was kind of self-inflicted. And I'd even go one stage further to say it's not my true self. It's the, the it's, it was the voice in my head which I no longer believed to be my true self. 
I believe that to be aspects of my character and my culture and my upbringing. Um, and for some reason, it doesn't have the hold on me that it, it used to have. I, I think that's some, something that could be looked at more in addiction treatment, actually, rather than just trying to change the voice in the head, um, which seems to be the the, the way of treatment centers. And, um, you know, if, if you just do this moral code or just say no or just go to the gym enough. Um, but people <laughs> go into treatment and get addicted to the gym. Uh, which is fine. It's much better than putting needles in your arm. But as soon as you get an injury and you can't go to the gym, you, you, you'll hit depression again. That's, that's what tends to happen. And my putting down alcohol and cocaine, well, putting down everything, uh, wasn't the end of my troubles. You know, I, I don't mind saying that. If, like, if you, if you read the, the big book of AA and you read the stories, there's a kind of a narrative, which is, this is a bit, I'm going to exaggerate for effect, but basically says, you know, I was a bum. I uh, couldn't stop drinking. And then I found AA and and now I skip off into the sunset. And that's a bit of an exaggeration. I think it's a, it's a bit more complex than that. Life can get quite tough when you're clean. You know, if, if you've been avoiding stuff, like the outside stuff, which is responsibility, and the inside stuff, which is internal responsibility. If you've been avoiding that, it can come at you rather thick and fast. And you've been able to stay sober while all those things are coming at you after years of avoidance. Um, well, yeah, there's, there's an expression we use in AA that says you have to admit to your innermost self. So how I interpret now, it's like... He, in in my head, there's like a committee of this kind of um, board who sit around the table and decide what I'm going to do for my finance and my friends and you know my hobbies and stuff. And an addiction was like the CEO. And then one day, he just said, "I've had enough." That was my innermost self. I, I can't do this anymore. And that kind of internal surrender, I, I couldn't conjure it up. I couldn't. I, I tried to conjure it up for the last five years of my active addiction. I, I, I tried to stimulate that kind of thought from within. Come on, say you've had enough, and then I'd find myself on the on the back end of a three day bender again. Um, but one day, it spoke to me. The CEO of my committee just said, "We're fucked." And at that point, I was willing to surrender um, and seek some help. I had to admit that there was <laughs> my psyche, which I thought was me, couldn't deal with getting clean. And then as you get clean and you deal with the internal responsibility and the feelings, it can be really, really overwhelming, especially when fear kicks in. But that message I got from the CEO has never gone away. It's never said to me, drinking drugs is going to be the answer. <clears throat> I know it's not the answer. It, it just makes 100% sense to me now. Every now and again, I'll get a thought, not to take cocaine, but I'll get a thought to maybe have a beer or two, you know, look at their having some, it should be fine. But I just remember where it took me. <laughs> I have a bottle or two of spirits, and then I have cocaine, and then I cry myself to sleep. And I wake up in the morning dreading that I've woken up, thinking, Groundhog Day, here we go again. 
not wanting that in my life is it, it, not quite enough. It, it is an essential part of it. Well, it was for me. <clears throat> but I also need to have a life that's worth living as well. That's That's been very important to me. I can't just live on, um, you know, staying clean. There's been days when I've probably had to, when it's when it's my last bastion. The CEO says, this is terrible, but you've got to stay clean. In between, I get moments of creativity, joy. I even get a taste of serenity. I'm quite an anxious person by, um, I think I'm naturally or inherently kind of quite anxious. I got bite my nails. I'm all right with that now. You know, I don't even try and stop biting my nails. In fact, when I forget about biting my nails, I notice I haven't bitten them for a week. But when I'm saying to myself, you've got to stop biting your nails, it makes me bite my nails. But as the, as the self-centeredness gets diluted, it's, it's just a little peccadillo. It's not, it's not the end of the world. No one's sitting indoors thinking, I wonder if he's biting his nails. <laughs> you know, it's just not happening. See, see the, the, the old me, no, I, don't, I won't call it the old me. I've not, it, 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 there's a part of me that doesn't have such a hold on me now where it would demand that I stop biting, biting my nails. And, and you know, if, again, if, if it was just the flick of a switch, I'd flip the switch and say, didn't bite nails anymore. But as the self-obsession, as I've been able to see into the self-obsession, I, I understand that I'm going to have some, you know, I'm not a great fan of the word character defects, if, if I'm honest, but that that's the term we use in recovery. But, you know, like peccadillos, I, I have some little characteristics that, that ain't great, but but they just don't bug me like they used to. I still get the thought that it's going to bug me, but the thought about the thought doesn't bug me, if that makes sense. You mentioned the defect of character reference from AA. I'm not a big fan of that one either. Addiction isn't a defect of character. It's a defect of the mind. People don't become addicted because of poor judgment, lack of willpower, or weakness. They become addicted because they have a chronic brain disorder, usually the result of trauma. It's not unlike any other chronic brain disorder like depression or anxiety. Yeah, so we don't say that addiction is a... Uh, a character defects. What what we do in recovery is we we look at the stuff that was there before we picked up. They're your character defects, and it's it's all to do with self centered fear is 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 the root of it. And so there's there's things we can do to like when your mind's telling you that you're not enough that or there's not enough food or there's not enough sex or there's not enough drugs or you're not tall enough, you're not thin enough, or whatever. That, that is self-centered fear. And then it, when your decisions are, are based on that, that, that is the character defect, not the addiction. Addiction is actually a, quite a, let's say, efficient way of dealing, dealing with your emotions. It's just not a skillful way. <laughs> That's all. And, and, it, and the consequences are quite, are quite severe. But logically, it makes sense. You know, you, you're you're feeling bad. Have some Xanax. And with that in mind, when you were talking about your insecurities and how they affect your relationships in life with your kids, your wife, even your dogs, 
I started thinking about that attachment theory called anxious preoccupied attachment, or some call it anxious attachment style. It's basically the theory of how childhood experiences and trauma create anxiety about our relationships later in life. Would you say that's something you're suffering from? Yeah, so so I've identified this in myself, and, and I don't fight it. I, I don't keep trying to improve it. And, and when it shows up, the, 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 my innermost self, you know, I, I'm... Or the CEO of my of my committee just go ah oh, that that's that's that you know you, you I, I get a little bit of anxiety here and there I I don't have to I don't have to give myself a hard time about it, it it's it's just a, something that's happening I, I don't I don't I don't know I've not marked myself down for it it's just something I observe it you know I don't I'm not. So it shows up that I bite my nails. I think that might just be a physical habit. I, I don't know who bite my nails when I'm anxious. Even when you're feeling good, you bite your nails. It's, it's, it's not a response to anxiety. It's the thought about the nail biting that can bring on anxiety. And as I've begun to notice that thought, I get less anxious. The anxiety hasn't gone, um, but I'm not anxious about my anxiety. And, and it's not like hyper. I mean, I, I bump into people who are medicating all the time, or they're continually creating diversions and drama to to kind of create a backdrop to the anxiety. Um, in, in myself, I, I no longer see it as, as as negative. And curiously enough, when I see other people acting out. I no longer see it as negative in there. They're just they're just playing out their role, which in in the in the way that they know to do. You know, who, who am I to, to go up and give them advice? The, the only time it becomes, I would say, experience as opposed to advice. The only time it comes applicable is if someone comes and asks me directly. That that's when they're ready. That's when they've had a little surrender. No one listens to advice before surrender, like no one. And after you surrendered and decided to get sober, what were those internal responsibilities you talked about and all the issues you were avoiding in your active addiction? Um, I think the, the, the main thing was, so there's, there's the using and there's getting and finding ways and means to get more. So. Unbeknownst to myself, it's, it, it, addiction's often called a disease, and I, I see it more as a parasite now. It's like it overtakes the brain. And so, we, you know, we've got to get some more of this magic powder so that you feel good. So your decisions are based around getting this magic powder or this magic liquid, whatever you're, or this magic sex or whatever the, the balm is for your addiction. Um, but it doesn't kind of tell you that you're avoiding other things. So there's the physical things that, that I avoided, and there was the emotional things that I avoided, like conflicts. I could, I was absolutely terrible at conflicts. My way of dealing with conflicts was just to disappear or shout, and um, and like in in quite a bullying way, and. Um, or, or just the disappearing way. And when you're doing that with your wife and children, it has a negative effect on them. Now, to my head, that seemed like an effective 
way. It, it, it seemed effective. There was obviously financial consequences. Although I was working in, in my business, the business was reasonably successful. Um, but a couple of days after my first, a couple of days into recovery, I, I decided to look at my finances and um, but they weren't as bad as some. I had this quite a big house with quite a small mortgage. Um, but I said to my wife, "I'm going to I'm going to open this drawer. We, we both had a we had a chest of drawers in our bedroom. I'm going to open my drawer and look at these letters that I that I've been avoiding for a year." She said, "What kind of letters? Because we're like from credit card companies and stuff." And I had about ten thousand pounds. I think that's about twelve thousand US dollars of debt and it turns out so did she <laughs> and so well in, in the interest of honesty let's let's do something about about getting out of this debt um so financially i i got back on my feet quite quickly within a year or so um that some so something straightened up really quickly um but then as you get to see yourself from, from deeper within yourself, you, you start to see the dysfunction more. A lot of the way I behaved was just down to my, my upbringing and my culture and what my mind to- told me. And um, yeah, it, was quite, it could be quite explosive. It was a mix between explosion and disappearing, really. And that's, that's, not, um, that's not a great... <laughs> recipe for for a good marriage the the good thing that came out of it was in so I got clean in 2003 and we filed for divorce in 2012 so it was what nine years into my recovery um we decided to get divorced and we, we admitted that our marriage was over we give each other a big hug and had a cry and it said, we're not going to go after each other. You know, we've got three children. We've had 25 years together. And, you know, we've just drifted apart. And neither of us wanted, wanted to get, wanted to recapture. We tried, A couple of years earlier, we tried some marriage guidance and stuff, and nothing was moving. And when the end came, it, it was quite swift. Um, but it was it, it, it was amicable. We we both knew it was the right thing to do. Um, I, I kind of thought after we'd made the decision to divorce that um, because it was a decision, you know, it, it wasn't kind of forced upon us, or um, that it was going to be pain free. But I found it incredibly painful. Um, the, the lots of the roles that I had. You know, normally, you go out to dinner as couples, and suddenly I wasn't invited, and the self-centeredness was was still there. Um, I, I never thought that my ex-wife wasn't getting invited to places, but because she stayed with the kids, she was still going to places, and I, I felt kind of hard done by. It. I felt quite sorry for myself for for a couple of years. Um, but looking back, it was more to do with the roles that I thought I had. Because curiously enough, after leaving, the, I left the family home in 2012, and I think we did, we actually divorced in, I think it come through about 
2015. But from leaving the home, I actually become a much better father. And, you know, I, I was a much better father from the day I got clean. I mean, that, that was quite clear. Um, but from, le- from leaving the home, I was able to uh, be much more honest with my with my kids who are now, you know, sort of turning into adults, young adults. And, um, you know, like allow them to be wrong. You know, I thought my role as a father was just just correct them all the time. And uh, turns out that wasn't such a good idea. Uh, and just, just be supportive, you know. And... and like with their choices, especially choices I don't agree with. Uh, as before, I'd give them all the reasons why I don't agree, and, and I happen to be right because I'm your dad. And for some reason, that just fell away from me. And I was able to be much more supportive, and, and the, the nature of our conversations shifted simply because of that. But they felt much more open, they could be more honest with me knowing that I wouldn't re- re- resort to my pre- previous coping mechanisms of disappearing or shouting. And I'm not saying I don't disappear and shout, but it's, it's, it's much rarer. So you were, uh, I think you said you were nine years sober when you left the family home. Where did life take you after that? Um, well, the one decision I made was, I was sorry, I'm living in Thailand now, but I was, living in the UK, was living in London. And the one decision I made was, I'm going to take a holiday. I just want some time on my own to see what's happening so I'm not distracted. So I took just a week, a week holiday in the Canary Islands, which is around the year-long sunshine. And I did that for six years. I went, first week in January, I just went away. And um, remembering that neither of us could afford to buy each other out for the house, so we had to sell the house. But we ended up with a tidy sum each. So I decided there's no time like the present, and I'm going to dip into some of that money, you know, with the voice in my head saying, yeah, but when you're older, you'll need it. And I, don't, I didn't want to be a wealthy old man. Um, so I, I started to travel, and part of that travel took me to... Um, I went to, in 2015, I went to India for eight weeks, done some traveling and listening to some wise gurus and stuff and some not-so-wise gurus. And then from there, I ended up in Thailand, where I've been for the last six and a half years, um, living quite a low-key life. Um, You know, especially since this... um, COVID thing uh, so I've, I've gone in and out of COVID panic not so much about the disease but about the financial um, fallout uh, but it seems to have settled now I haven't had a COVID panic for I don't know six or eight months I've just spotted the way the mind conjures up fear and uh, you know my, my earlier kind of um, working recovery doing doing the Buddhism and stuff. When I first started practicing it, it was quite kind of weird. You'd do meditations on your own death. <laughs> and you'd say things like, I'm definitely going to die. I may die today. 
and all this kind of stuff that felt quite fearful at the time actually just kind of made sense. Um, the fear hasn't gone, but I just don't buy into it like I used to. I, I get caught out occasionally, like we all do, but and you need a certain amount of fear. I mean, if you're crossing the road, it's a really good idea to look left and right. Um, By the way, sorry to backtrack. Did your wife and kids know about the addiction at the time? Um, my kids were too young. Um, so I would imagine as, as adults now, they'll, they can, because you, your consciousness changes over time and they'll, they'll re-put the pieces together. But, but I didn't, you know, I, I thought I was being a good father by not doing it in front of them. I didn't realize the, the kind of offstage stuff that was happening. Um, my wife was surprised in the sense that it was that it was cocaine. She thought that alcohol was uh, the, the the main thing. Uh, she she knew something was up long. It's the same with any addict. Everyone else around you knows something's up before you do. Um, but uh, addicts generally we're incredibly self-centered and we use denial a lot and and that's because that's what our minds tell us it's not always a you know a conscious decision or because we're bad we're acting on the information that we're given you know it's the same as when I was when I was 12 when my mind didn't tell me that my father was telling me his father had died it, it, I just wasn't aware. It wasn't because I'm immoral. We act on what our minds are telling us. And if in active addiction, you have to wear a lot of masks to to try and please a lot of people, and you have to have your mind quite steady. What, what seems steady? I, I thought cocaine helped me with that. So I, so I remember my stories. My lies got bigger and more extravagant. <clears throat> to cover up this whole kind of narrative that was going on in, in my head. So the, 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 you know, what I call real intimate relationships, it's pretty hard for them to exist because you're, you're, everything's based on a false narrative. You know, you're trying to get ways and means to get more drugs. Everyone becomes a pawn in your game but you still want to be liked. It's, it's a real tough role to play. <laughs> I, I thought I'd done it quite well, but um, since since getting into recovery and speaking to like um, like my wife and mother-in-law, and they, they all knew something was up. And they, they always said they'd, they'd always liked me, but something changed. And a lot of it, I think, was was the line. You know, not turning up for events and stuff, and and the, the lies becoming more and more extravagant. And then to dig yourself out of a lie, you've got you've got to invent a new lie. Then you've got to remember that lie. It's just it's incredibly draining. <laughs> you know, they, they say the truth will set you free. It will piss you off along the way, but it's but it's much easier just just to tell the truth. <laughs> What, what I can, what I can have to say is, as my as I've made my life less about me, it's been better, and I, I don't mean that in a ever so I'm ever so fucking humble way. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, it's just not taking the voice in my head so seriously. 
um, it, 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 it hasn't made it go away, but it's, it's loosened its grip. So sometimes I, I have a day when I'm not even aware of it. You know, it, it, I'm aware of it in a practical sense, like, you know, do you want hot coffee or cold coffee, you know, but, but I'm not I'm not aware of threats, you know, e- even internal ones, you know, just traveling lighter with, with, a, with a rogue brain that <laughs> does go rogue on me from time to time. But, but, it, but it's not who I am. So while you've been telling your story, you've talked a lot about fear and doubt, self-doubt, and how those feelings led to addiction. And those feelings sound like they came from a lot of thinking, overthinking. Yeah, well, I think that is the primary addiction, is addiction to thinking. Because, because before, before we were a year old, we don't think. Because 95% or 98% or whatever it is of people thinking words. And the small minority of us thinking pictures, and some of us can do both. But, but the narrative in your head is in words. Well, you don't have them before about a year. And it's not exactly a year. It's not, you know, in exact science, but that, that's, that's close enough. And you've not even got a sense of self. And, and then suddenly you're in the world and, you, and you've, you've got words to describe things. And there's mum and there's dad and there's your brother and your sister and your aunt. And, and you can describe and look forward. And, and all that's fine and wonderful, but some of us... As, as as we grow up, we see threats that are not there. And it's all governed by this voice in the head that was implanted before you had the chance to make a decision. That, that That's what makes us all innocent. We, we all know babies are innocent. Even the most extreme racist on the planet has to admit that all babies are innocent. They, they didn't choose where or when they was born, what color, their sex, their religion and that they're just at the mercy of their environment. Now, unfortunately for some of us, we have to go through quite a lot of, I'll use that word, trauma, especially internal trauma. It's not always external. It's not always something we can point at, like a war or famine. But the internal trauma is then then we can question. You know, maybe there's another way of living. That's all it takes is, is, is... it's two things, really. It's well, it's a lot of things, but the first two is I've had enough. I'm beaten, and and then maybe there's another way. And then then it's then it's you may have to try two, three, or eleven different things to find another way. I, for for a while in my, when I was struggling in my recovery, I I went to um, a place called Smart Recovery. Which is uh, CBT CBT based cognitive behaviour therapy, and again, it, there was some advantages there, but it, but it still left me in the realm of psychology. But, but I kind of knew, even when I was in therapy, that there wasn't going to be a, a day when my therapist said to me, "Kibber, I, I don't want you a hundred pounds an hour anymore. You're a perfectly rounded human being. Off you go." You know, they they've got an interest to to keep you there. And if, if if you keep digging, you're going to find worms. So you, sometimes just just relax and sort of work on self acceptance rather than self improvement. It is an option. If the old way isn't working, then then maybe a new way has, has got a place. 
this is where the phone call sometimes gets awkward <laughs> because it's your story. I don't want to take you anywhere. You don't want to go, but my math sucks. I have to back time this, but I think you got 13 minutes. Right, you, you, you said we're, we're like two British people trying to say goodbye. British people were terrible at saying goodbye. So it's almost impossible to say goodbye. You, you go first. No, you. Well, uh, adios. All right. See you, Nick. It's interesting how he talked about overthinking and self-absorption. Fair to say a sign of self-absorption is overthinking. That's because overthinking can be comforting. Maybe it makes us feel like we're being cautious, but really we just end up in clever arguments and mind games with ourselves. But as this caller talked about, that self-absorption is learned behavior, which means it can also be unlearned. Once again, I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.